Welcome to Making Sense of Money, a podcast dedicated to making complicated financial topics easier to understand. I'm Nikki Giancola Shanks. And I'm Andrew Pellegrini. Last episode, we talked with Alan Sorcher and Ann McKinley from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission about World Investor Week, which was the first week in October. We discussed many ways to learn more about investing throughout the year, so I hope you were able to find an option that works for you, or you're able to listen to that episode to get some ideas. This episode, we have our colleague from the Illinois Student Assistant Commission, or ISAC, Beth Groves. She's here to talk about the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or better known as FAFSA. Beth, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. My name is Beth Groves, and I am a professional development specialist at the Illinois Student Assistance Commission, also known as ISAC. So I do a lot of trainings for counselors on all things financial aid and college access. Thank you so much for joining us today, Beth. I know FAFSA is a very hot topic this year. So can you kind of provide an overview of what the FAFSA is and why it's essential for students and their families intending to go to college? Yeah, so the FAFSA stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and this is often the first step for a lot of students in the college-going process to apply for federal aid. Students will use it not only for federal aid, they'll use it for state aid, they'll use it for institutional aid. A lot of colleges like to see that the student has filled out the FAFSA before they're going to award their own institutional aid. Students can fill it out online. That's how most students do it. They use FAFSA on the web, but there is a paper version available as well if students want to print that out and fill it in and mail it into FSA. So that's an option as well. There's still a paper version? Like I remember there was primary was the paper version back in the day. I didn't realize it was still an option. There is still a paper version, but again, most students are going to do it online. Yeah, much faster. So as Andrea mentioned, FAFSA is a little bit of a hot topic this fall, which is why we wanted to talk about it. So we've heard that there are updates to the FAFSA application that are expected to be coming. Could you tell us more about these changes and how that might impact students? Yeah, so the biggest one is that the FAFSA is going to be delayed. So the FAFSA usually opens up on October 1st, um, the year prior to when students would be going to school as first-time freshmen. So an example of that would be if a senior is going to graduate in 2024, then they are going to be filling out their FAFSA usually in October, and that will be for requesting funds for the 24-25 school year because they're going to be going to school that fall. So a big change with this is that it's no longer going to be opening up in October. That is just for this year. It's only because there's a big overhaul with the FAFSA. So they have not committed to an official date. Federal student aid has not committed to an official date, but they have committed to December. So they have said that it will open in December 2023. Technically, the law does require them to have it out by January 1st of 2024, but they have committed to a December opening date. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest thing that students are going to be facing in terms of getting those applications in and the financial aid offices getting responses to them in terms of what their financial aid offers are going to look like. Now it is going to go back to October 1st the next year. And the you know with the delay, of course, that is something that can be frustrating. But the idea is that hopefully this is going to help more students because the process will be simplified. In fact, they have taken it down by about half the amount of questions. So some students are not going to see nearly as many questions as they did before. And the nice thing with FAFSA on the web is that there is skip logic. And so student won't even maybe see the amount of questions that there are even now. So a lot fewer questions. Students will now have to transfer their tax information. Everyone's going to have to do that. Usually before, you know, in the 23-24 FAFSA, there was a tool that students could use this tool to transfer their tax information. It didn't always work. It was a little bit funky, but there is going to be a requirement now that students and their parents are going to provide consent. So that is going to be transferring their tax information straight over from the FAFSA. So that's hopefully going to minimize some of the verification that we see for a lot of students, meaning that they have to provide additional documentation, saying that they have an issue or there's some kind of conflicting information 
with their information that was reported because they weren't able to transfer information over directly. Another change that we're seeing is that the there's going to be a role for contributors. So no longer is it just one form that's open and the student is going to stop halfway through and get their parent to come in. Now it's going to be that the student starts their FAFSA, they log in with their FSA ID, they then get to a point where it says, hey, you're going to be a dependent student. We need you to provide parent information. Here's who you need to ask to provide that parent information. And it's going to have them put in that parent's information and then send that parent an email to be invited to be a contributor. So a student can no longer just submit the form until that contributor's information is going to be in there. I know there's lots of changes. I'm going to go over a couple more but hopefully not to overwhelm too many of our our listeners here. So one of the other ones that we're seeing is the EFC, which was formerly known as the expected family contribution. This was a number that was generated by the FAFSA form to tell students essentially, hey, this is how we're going to calculate your aid eligibility. So this has changed. The name of this is now going to be the Student Aid Index, also known as the SAI for short. So the idea behind that is that expected family contribution has been a little bit confusing for students to hear that number and wonder if that's what they're expected to contribute, right, as a family. And so some students will see that number and say, that number's too high, we can't contribute that. So the student aid index language is ideally going to change that mindset a little bit to, this is just kind of a representation of the resources that this family has, but it's not necessarily what they're going to be expected to contribute. So that will also simplify for some families knowing what kind of Pell grant they could receive in terms of need-based aid. More students are going to be eligible for a Pell grant with these changes, which is really great because that's money that the student doesn't have to pay back. The student aid index can go down to negative 1,500 now, so indicating more need for that student. That will signify to financial aid administrators, hey, this is a student that might need more of, say, your campus-based aid. So a lot of changes with that, and you'll, you'll notice that there's been some, some simplified questions with assets for families as well. So a lot of changes, but hopefully some good ones for families and, and students. I was already aware of a few of the changes, but your explanation helped summarize a lot of things that I was so confused on, so hopefully it helps our listeners too. In thinking about the delayed open date for the FAFSA, I know several years ago, it wasn't open till January 1st. And so as financial educators, we shifted to promoting it's available October 1st, which is great. And previously, you had to file your taxes for that same filing period before filling out the FAFSA, which made it more challenging. So is it still using prior prior tax year data when it's using the consent to pull over information, Beth? Yeah, so it will still use prior prior tax information. So that is something that has not changed. Otherwise, you'd be running into students who clearly have not filed their 2023 taxes, parents who have not done that. You know, you're technically not required to have a W-2 out to you until after that would open. So that is something that will still be in place. So students will still use their 2022 taxes when they're filing for the 24-25 filing period. Yes. Okay. So not quite as bad as several years ago before that original change, but can you kind of talk about maybe that, how that delayed open date for the FAFSA being in December could affect students and their families planning for higher ed or going to college? So I would encourage families to still be, you know, staying on top of other things that relate to the college going process. So, you know, with FAFSA not opening until December, potentially late December, this is a time where students can really use the opportunity in the fall to get those college applications done. I'm thinking back to when I was in high school and, you know, that is the time period, right, that you were getting those applications in. And so with FAFSA off the table for a lot of families, just because it's not available, I think, yes, it's it's a little bit stressful in the spring, but I think it will simplify some things for families and especially senior students who are already overwhelmed by the prospect of all the things that they have to get done. So I would still encourage them to do those things in the fall, do those college applications, do their scholarship applications. I would encourage them to make their FSA ID. I cannot stress that enough. 
That is not something that you need to wait on with creating your FSA ID. So students, if you do not have an FSA ID made, that is something you can do now. Juniors, that is something that you can do now. You do not have to wait to be a senior. And the reason for that is because the FAFSA is going to require that to get verified and it's going to take a few days for that to be verified. So while families can technically start the FAFSA still with their FSA ID just newly made, it is going to delay a few things. They're not going to get their student aid index calculated, so they're not going to have an idea of that. So I would encourage you just, especially if the site crashes, because we know that it does, to get that FSA ID done early and then still to, to focus on filing that FAFSA as soon as it does open. So Beth, I have a clarifying question real quick. A lot of the listeners that we have are not going to just have entering high school to college students. So for those students that are returning for their junior, their you know sophomore, junior, senior, graduate school career, should they still log into their FSA ID and make sure all the contact information is up as just as a preventative measure? Yes, I would definitely encourage that, especially if you haven't logged in in a while, maybe not since the last time you filled out a FAFSA to log in and just make sure that your contact information is up to date, especially if you move, especially if you you know changed emails or phone numbers to so just make sure that that information is up to date. There's also a process for users who already have an FSA ID. If you have not logged in in a while, you will notice that there is a process called multi-factor authentication that's going to make you go into your account and verify you're either going to get a code via email, a code via your phone number, or the the recommended option is to get an authenticator app to, to basically get a push notification to log into your FSA ID. So that is now going to be required both for people who are making a new FSA ID and for anyone who tries to log into their existing FSA ID. So Beth, I know that you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but is there any specific information that students and parents should be aware of regarding this delayed FAFSA open date that you may give them specific advice about this delayed open date? Are there any other key dates that they should keep in mind, deadlines? I know that there's, you know, state level deadlines, institutional level deadlines, et cetera. Yeah, you bring up a great point. So there are still deadlines that are in place. We've heard from a lot of higher education institutions that they are going to be pushing their priority deadlines in terms of to get students aid at that institution. And so while they're getting pushed, that is still going to be a deadline that's in place for a lot of institutions. So I would encourage students, especially now as they have this time and they're applying to colleges, to just look at the financial aid pages on their colleges that they're interested in applying to, contact those financial aid offices and see what those deadlines are so that even if they're applying in January, they're going to know, hey, I still need to get this done by, say, February 15th, right? So definitely paying attention to those deadlines. I would also encourage them to Pay attention to state deadlines. Those are going to vary. So, you know, for students in the state of Illinois, this is only a grant that's available to students who are Illinois residents who stay in Illinois. But we have the MAP grant and the MAP grant is the Monetary Award Program. And it's a need-based grant for students, again, who are staying in the state of Illinois. And so in order to be eligible for this grant, that funding can run out. So a student is not guaranteed to get that funding. So even though the FAFSA is delayed, the still the same principle applies to the fact that they need to get their application done and complete so that they're in line for those funds. Because our recommendation at the state of Illinois is as soon as possible as after that filing period begins. So whether that's October 1st, whether that's, you know, say December 15th, right, as soon as possible after that filing period begins. That is something that I always highlight with the students that I talk to across the University of Illinois system is you need to get that FAFSA completed as soon as possible after opening because MAP grants do run out and we have many, many students that are eligible for the MAP grant. So, Beth, are there any major policy or legislative changes related to the FAFSA that our listeners should know about, especially in light of these updates for this fall? 
So yeah, I'll summarize a few for you that I think relate to FAFSA and just higher education planning in general for students. So obviously the big one is the FAFSA Simplification Act. That's what all of these changes are coming out of. This was building upon that Higher Education Act that happened in 1965. And then we had the FAFSA Simplification Act that came out of the Consolidated Appropriations Act just a few years ago. So that's where all of these changes are coming from. But there's a few other things that have changed how students look at higher education, how students look at FAFSA completion. So a big one that happened just a few years ago was the FAFSA completion initiative, which required students to complete a FAFSA or an alternative application, which is the state application for students who are not eligible for a FAFSA, to complete that before they graduate. They have to complete it as a graduation requirement. And so this is just some states that were seeking to basically increase their FAFSA completion. A lot of students weren't sure what the FAFSA could offer for them. They didn't realize that that was an option. They, you know, I, I think a lot of students sometimes look at the FAFSA and they think it's just for loans, not realizing that there's a lot of need-based aid attached to it. So that was the idea behind that. But Illinois does have that requirement. So counselors are hard at work getting their students to either complete that FAFSA, complete that alternative app or complete a non-participation form to, to waive that saying, you know, essentially that perhaps they're not planning to go to college, maybe they're gonna go straight into a career and they don't need that funding. So another one that comes to mind is the Illinois PACE framework. And so the PACE framework is the post-secondary and career expectations framework, which essentially has a bunch of benchmarks on this to help students become college and career ready. So counselors are working with students for them to meet these benchmarks. And this was something that was not a requirement previously. And in the last year, it has become a requirement that schools implement this. And one of the benchmarks that is on the PACE framework for seniors in particular is to go to a financial aid workshop, right? Complete a FAFSA or an alternative application. So that's one of the benchmarks that's on there. And so I think that connects really well and then some of the other things that have definitely come out of the FAFSA and have come out of just financial aid in general are a lot of questions we get about debt relief, because obviously that was a big thing that came down in June from the Supreme Court, striking down that decision to forgive that ten dollars or $20,000, whether you received a Pell Grant in student loans. And so out of that, the Biden administration has been looking for other options in terms of how they can provide some relief. And one of the options that especially our students that are listening who maybe are getting ready to enter repayment, maybe they're going to be seniors next year. You know, we've been in a paused period of repayment and that's going to start back up in October. But the SAVE plan is a new plan for an income-driven repayment plan that came out of that decision that hopefully can get students on a lower monthly amount um, so that they can get forgiveness sooner. So those are just a few things that I think apply to FAFSA and students should be aware of as they are preparing to enter repayment or preparing to enter college. All great advice. Thank you for that. I know that there are students who were definitely planning to submit their FAFSA applications early, probably see how much they could get, et cetera, to help them make decisions. So how should they adjust their timelines and strategies given the delay? I think it goes back to, again, just focusing on the college applications now. They can also look into scholarships. Scholarship applications are often looked at in terms of the winter time as a good time to apply for scholarships. And so for students, they can be looking at those opportunities now. They can be looking at their local businesses and seeing what opportunities are available. You know, there's no harm in asking if there's a scholarship available for the student at a local business. So I would say looking into those scholarships is a good place to start. Definitely getting that FSA ID created. Again, I cannot stress that enough. That's something where they can work with their counselor, but they can also work with their local ISAC core member. If there is somebody in their school working with students, the core is a, a group of students or a group of professionals, rather, who are recent college graduates who are going into high schools and working with students to prepare them for life after high school, whatever that might look like. And so that is something that a core member can sit down with the student and, and help them prepare for. Thank you so much, Beth. We also had an episode specifically on searching for and applying to scholarships, episode 52, which we'll put in the show notes. So anyone that is like, okay, I will expedite my scholarship search, we'll give you some resources to help you navigate that. 
So Beth, how can students and families best prepare for the upcoming FAFSA application season? Best advice I can give is start gathering those documents that you know you're going to need to complete your FAFSA, especially if you are a returning student, you know, you've gone through this process before. But if you're a new student, that looks like gathering those 2022 taxes, that looks like gathering any records of investments that you might have that looks like taking a look at your checking account, your savings account, just making sure that you have access to all of that information so that when the time comes, you can just sit down and work on the application and you don't have to get up and go search for another application or another piece of information that you're going to need for your FAFSA. I also would just encourage students to be paying attention to what aid is out there right? Looking at national scholarships, looking at local scholarships. I do encourage students to look at local scholarships first because that applicant pool is going to be quite a bit smaller. And so there's a a higher likelihood that they're going to receive that scholarship versus applying for, you know, maybe a larger scholarship that is a national scholarship that they're going to be less likely to get. This can be hard with students sometimes because it's really tempting to look at a $10,000 scholarship and apply for that scholarship, especially if it's a really easy process versus looking at, say, a local scholarship that's going to give you $500 and thinking, well, $500 is not going to make a dent in this process for me. But if you think about it in the fact that, say, that that $500 scholarship took you two hours to complete, you just made $500 in two hours, which I don't know any jobs that are paying $250 an hour. So that's a really good return on investment for students. And just knowing, you know, what kind of grant aid is out there, that can really make a dent in a student's financial aid. That's consistent with what we have spoken about with scholarships, that additional competition of going larger is going to decrease your chances. So go ahead and apply for those $500 scholarships. Every little bit adds up. So in talking about the FAFSA, I have taught about FAFSA or done FAFSA reminders for many years, and there are always common myths and misconceptions around the FAFSA. Are there any that you would like to debunk today? I love debunking myths about the FAFSA. It's great. The first one is a lot of students might think that the FAFSA costs money, and that is absolutely not true. If you look at the name of the application, it is the free application for federal student aid. So that being said, if you encounter a site that is asking you to pay for this form, that is not the site that you want to be at. You want to get away from that site. If you are not sure where to go, go to fafsa.gov and that will take you to the correct site. You can also get there via studentaid.gov if you want to just look for more information that way. So that's one of the the biggest ones, I think, is that the FAFSA costs money because it does not. Another one is that the FAFSA is not worth my time. It's too complicated. Um, If you have all the right documents with you, you, you know, everything is smooth sailing, you can get that application done in as little as 30 minutes. That doesn't mean that every single student is going to get it done in as little as 30 minutes, but you can get it done in that time. So it is not going to take you three days and it is going to be worth your time just in terms of what you potentially could get for financial aid. Another one is that the FAFSA is just for loans. That is not true as well, right? We know that the FAFSA is also an application for the Pell Grant. The Pell Grant amount is just over $7,300 at this point, which you know, spread over the course of a year, that's going to be a good chunk of change that a student is going to receive in gift aid. That means they do not have to pay that money back. So the Pell Grant, yes, it's need-based, but especially with the changes happening this year, a lot more students are going to receive that Pell Grant, and it's not going to just be for those loans. It's also going to be for federal work study, right? If a student wants to work on campus, the FAFSA is the way that they would apply for those funds. And a lot of colleges do like to see that the student has tried to dip into those federal funds, those state funds, before they start awarding their own institutional aid. And so that is another reason why it's going to be worth that student's time. Another one that I've seen is that students will think that they only have to submit the FAFSA once. 
And, you know, returning students, you all know that that is something that needs to be done every single year. So the nice thing with the FAFSA going back to October 1 next year is that you will be able to do that in the fall next year, kind of just get it done. Yes, that means you have to do it twice in the span of a year, but that is something that you will have to do on an annual basis if you want to be requesting funds for that next year. And a final one that I've just seen is that students and parents will have questions about their FSA ID whether they can just use the same one, and that is not the case. So a student's FSA ID is going to be tied to their social security number. Parents is going to be tied to their social security number as well. And that's actually something else that's changing, is that all students and parents will need an FSA ID now. So that means that parents who do not have a social security number, previously they were going to have to print out that signature page, and now there's going to just be a different way to verify that parent's identity, but it's still going to be linked to them and their identity. So students and parents do need to have separate FSA IDs. So, I mean, we've clearly talked a lot about FAFSA and the changes. So for people who are listening, how can students and parents stay informed about any FAFSA updates or changes as they unfold? And where can they find reliable sources for assistance? We know that there are a lot of scams and frauds out there, and they're starting to really attack student loans, space, et cetera. So if you could give us some insight on where people can go for true information. There are absolutely a lot of schemes out there. You know, anywhere money is involved, there's going to be someone who's trying to take advantage of that. So I would recommend studentaid.gov as your primary source of information. That's where they're putting out constant information. But your counselors are also going to be getting up-to-date information from us as a training team. So part of what my job is, is training counselors, training other college access and financial aid professionals in terms of all of this FAFSA simplification and all the changes that are happening with that. And so counselors are staying up to date with that. They're attending our webinars, they're coming to our trainings. And so your counselor is going to be a great resource if you do have questions. You know, sometimes studentaid.gov can be a little bit hard to digest as a student just because it is very technical language, but they are going to have the most up-to-date information that's where we as trainers get our information and we try to put it into information that makes a little bit more sense, a little bit more digestible for professionals and for students and parents. Another option is to connect with your ISAC board member. So again, if there is somebody in your school or if there's someone in your area, you can talk to your counselor about that. They might know if that core member is working in that school or how to connect with them. And that's somebody that you as a student can sit down with. They work with high school students. They also work with college students who want to, you know, are already in college or maybe somebody who is an adult who wants to return to college. They will work with anyone on this process. And so they can you know, sit down with you and give you reliable information. We as a training team also train the core on all of this information. And so they have up-to-date information. We do continuous training with them as well. So those are some just reliable sources to go to keep avoiding those scams out there. Thank you, Beth. So one of the things you kept mentioning was counselors and there's different types of counselors. There's high school counselors, there's financial aid counselors explicitly. So can you kind of clarify what role that high school counselors, college advisors, and financial aid counselors or professionals kind of play in helping students navigate the FAFSA process? Yes. So high school counselors are going to have many hoops that they wear. So a high school counselor, depending on the school, they could just be designated as a school counselor where they're focusing more on that social emotional learning side of things. And they are truly somebody that the student can go to in terms of dealing with something with their mental health or planning for their classes that's best going to suit them. There are some schools that have additional counselors that are college and career counselors. Some of them have different names, and it really is just going to depend on the school. But this is a counselor that potentially you could sit down with and talk about what your plans are after high school. If you're going to go into a career, if you're going to go into college, what your college options are, if you're going to go to a two-year, a four-year, if you're going to do a certificate program, you know, to just lay out all those options for you that not every student is necessarily just going to go straight to a four-year institution. 
and that there are so many different options in that all-encompassing word of college. Now, some high schools are going to have their school counselor and their college and career counselor be the same person. It just depends on the size of the schools, depends on the size of that staff. And then on the other side of things, your financial aid advisors, financial aid administrators, that's going to be on the college side. So these are going to be people that you know, whether that's at the community college, whether that's at the four-year university, that's going to be somebody that the student can then go talk to if they have questions about their financial aid or about that process. I know a lot of times, I was a core member myself with the ISAC core. A lot of times we would all collaborate, the college, the high school, the core member to put on a workshop to help students get their financial aid applications complete, get their college applications complete. It's just a whole community-wide effort to get all of that um, put together. But there are different roles within there. It just is gonna depend on the high school. Or college. Yeah, because I know Andrea also has a lot of, in her role at University of Illinois, you deal with a lot of helping students kind of navigate this as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And mainly budgeting the financial aid process since I'm in the Bursar office and our financial aid offices are each at each campus. So it's a little bit different, but I kind of have to have a little bit of knowledge of financial aid processes and a lot of knowledge on personal finance. So are there any other alternative financial aid options or scholarships that students can explore in case they encounter challenges with the FAFSA or they just find out that they're not eligible? Yes, so I have mentioned the alternative application for Illinois Financial Aid, but I wanna go a little bit more in detail with this. So with the FAFSA, um, this is gonna be the route that most students take to apply for federal aid, for state aid, for institutional aid. But not every single student is going to be eligible to complete the FAFSA. So there's a question that will ask if the student is a US citizen, that would be a student who's eligible to complete the FAFSA. But if the student is not a US citizen, there is an option and a list of eligible non-citizens. But again, not every student's gonna fall into that category. So it's important for a student, if they're not a U.S. citizen, to just take a really good look at that question and see if they fall into one of those eligible non-citizen categories that's typically going to be looking at students who have a permanent resident card, students who have certain types of visas or designations, maybe they were a victim of human trafficking. But again, the FAFSA does have that full list of questions in terms of what is going to be somebody who is an eligible non-citizen. Now, if the student discovers that they are not an eligible non-citizen and they're not a U.S. citizen, they can then go and look at the alternative application for Illinois Financial Aid. And this is essentially an application for the MAP grant, the Monetary Award Program, which again, it's a need-based grant. It's for Illinois students though. So say that the student does not qualify, say that they're an undocumented student and they don't qualify for the FAFSA, they can then look at the alternative application. But if they're planning to go out of state, that is not something that's going to apply to them because they have to stay in state in order to receive that financial aid. So that's an option for students. There are some pre-screening questions on that application just to verify residency. For the student, they do have to to meet some requirements. They have to agree that they're going to sign an affidavit that they will become a resident at at the earliest opportunity that they have to do so. It's worded that way in particular just because, you know, for undocumented students, there is not always a pathway to citizenship that is available to them. And so um, it's worded that way so that they are able to sign that, but it's not locking them into, hey, you're going to just automatically uh, become a U.S. permanent resident. That's a requirement here because it's as soon as you are eligible to do so. I do want to call out one particular group of students here. And those are our DACA students, so Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals students. And so these are students who came to the U.S. when they were younger, and they've just kind of always known the U.S. as home. And so this grants students a social security number for work purposes. And technically, that means that the student can file a FAFSA. Now, even though they can file a FAFSA because they have a social security number, they can make that FSA ID, they will have to answer, I am not a citizen or an eligible non-citizen, which automatically will make them ineligible for federal aid. 
At that point, they're just applying for state and institutional aid. And so in the state of Illinois, we direct them to the alternative application just because it's, it's gonna be the same process for them to be receiving the same aid. So how does the FAFSA process vary for students that might be dependent versus independent? For students who are dependent, they are going to have to provide parent information. So that's gonna be the biggest difference that you'll see with a student who's dependent versus independent is that when they're going through this form, it's going to identify for them, especially the, the 2425, it's got, it's got this parent wizard tool, um, which is awesome. It's gonna designate who is the parent that you should be putting on this form. And I think for a lot of students that has caused some confusion in the past, especially in cases of divorced parents. So it will designate, hey, this is who you need to be inviting as a contributor to your form. And so, they then will have to provide that parent information. Now, not every dependent student who you know goes through those dependency questions is necessarily gonna be able to provide parent information. That is something that I definitely have seen out in the field is that um, students will need to get a dependency override. And so for those students, um, you, you will encounter that maybe they're fleeing an abusive household, maybe they uh, have parents who are incarcerated, or perhaps they just don't know where their parents are. They don't know how to contact them. Those are gonna be circumstances where maybe they went through those dependency questions and they could not answer yes to a single question. So they've been deemed dependent, but they still have to provide that parent information. So with the 2425 FAFSA, a nice change that we have seen is that, you know, now there's going to be an option to proceed as a provisionally independent student. So previously, the student would need to just say, I can't provide parent information. And they would just have to follow up with the financial aid office to, to talk about that situation and get that dependency override. This is gonna to signify to financial aid offices. I would still encourage students to follow up with that financial aid office, but this will, this will signify to a financial aid office that this is somebody who basically is gonna get a dependency override because they, depending on the documentation, of course, that they would still have to provide, but they are going to be able to proceed without that parent information. Now for dependent students who, and I, I've seen this before as well, where parents just don't wanna report their information. That is definitely something that I have seen out in the field, but that's just like fear of having that information reported to the government, just to ease those minds, because I know that is a re very real concern. That is information that is just for financial aid purposes. It's not going to get shared elsewhere. And it's often information that the, the federal government actually already has for you. So just to kind of ease those concerns a little bit, because I have encountered that where parents are just hesitant to provide their information. A lot of times parents will be hesitant to report their information because they are not planning to pay for college and they don't want their information to be included in that calculation. With the FAFSA, this is an application that's in the student's name. And so they are filing it as the student. They have the full responsibility to fund their education. The parent has no responsibility unless, of course, they opt to take out a loan in their name. Um, but again, that is on the student. And so to just kind of ease those concerns as well for parents who maybe are not planning to participate in that cost of education. Still, if a parent refuses to provide that parent information, that means that the student is just going to be eligible for unsubsidized loans. And so those are loans where the interest is always accruing. It is still a federal loan, but our subsidized loans, the interest is paused while the student is in school. So they have a little bit more flexibility there, but the student would not be eligible for any kind of need-based aid. So like a Pell Grant, a MAP Grant, they would not be eligible for that. For our independent students, that process is going to go faster, of course, because it's just them as the contributor, unless, of course, they're married, then they would have their spouse as a contributor as well, but they do not have to provide any of that parent information. So most students, I would say, will be dependent until they turn 24. That is automatically going to make them an independent student, unless, of course, they can answer yes to one of those dependency questions that the FAFSA will ask them. So I know that all of this could be very overwhelming to people who are sitting down to, to start filling out this paperwork. So what are some tips that you have for avoiding common mistakes when completing the FAFSA form? And how do those common errors impact a student's financial aid eligibility? 
The biggest issue that I have seen is just not entering in your information correctly. The social security number is is the biggest one. That is the hardest thing to change if you enter it in incorrectly. And that is just because your FSA ID is linked to that number and it goes through and it gets verified. So if you create your FSA ID, the social is wrong, and then you start to create your FAFSA, you'll notice that a lot of the information is pre-filled from your FSA ID. So that social security number, that will be pre-filled and it will be grayed out. So you cannot go back in and change that. That is something where you'll have to go communicate with the, the financial aid office, change it on your paper student aid report um, to, to get that changed. And so I just encourage students to, to just make sure that they're avoiding any kind of delays with that by making sure that their information is correct. That means their date of birth, their name. Those are things that they can go in and change. It's not going to be grayed out. Um, I was working with a student once where we could not figure out why her FAFSA was delayed for so, so long. There were just all kinds of issues. It was not processing. And eventually we went back through every single question and I discovered that her name was spelled wrong. And it's not something that you think to check because that is somebody's name. You assume that they spelled it correctly, but it was just a typo. And once we corrected the name, it just processed automatically and it was good to go. But so checking every single thing is, is going to be critical, especially the things that you wouldn't think to check. The other one I would say is using a personal email for your form that includes for your FSA ID that includes parents as well. If a student or a parent uses a school or a professional email, that is something I would just say avoid because there's no guarantee that the parent is going to still be employed with that same profession for the next four years that the student is requesting aid, especially for the student. If they're using a school email, a high school email, right, they are going to leave that school in May. And all of a sudden, when they go to fill out their FAFSA the next year, they can't get into that email if they need to, you know, put a code in to, to get into their FSA ID to start their application. So using a personal email is going to be crucial there. The other thing would just be submitting your FAFSA as soon as you can, especially in the state of Illinois. Not submitting that as soon as possible after that filing period begins means that a student could miss out on aid, especially aid like the MAP grant. But just to be checking with colleges if they have their own kind of deadlines to just keep be getting that in early. Creating that FSA ID early is also going to be critical. Reading through that form, making sure that everything that you're submitting is correct. Checking over that tax information, a lot of times it can be confusing knowing what exactly the form is asking for tax information. The nice thing with the automatic transfer now is that a lot of that will be eliminated and so a student won't have to be worrying about that. But you know, when a student submits their FAFSA, they're going to get a summary at the end of the application where they'll want to go through and just make sure that every single thing on there is correct just to, to have that so that they can minimize delays later in terms of processing, in terms of a financial aid offer being delayed from the institution, especially with that quicker turnaround for colleges where they are trying to get those financial aid offers out so that students have time before that national decision day of May 1. It is definitely going to be a busy spring semester. The one that comes to mind that's kind of comical one is that just paying attention to when you're in the student or the parent section. I can't tell you how many times I got a student who was so confused by the question asking if the student was married because they thought I was talking about their parents because this is, you know, a 17 year old and how could they be married? And so just paying attention when it says you or your, it's talking about the student because this is an application in their name. So we talked a lot about the FAFSA changes and the delayed open date for that this fall, but do you have any advice for either high school seniors or college seniors that are going to go to grad school as they prepare for the college application or trade school application or grad school application when it comes to FAFSA changes? Yeah, so the nice thing is that they do have a little more time. I do know that sometimes applications and especially scholarship applications will want to know kind of an estimated EFC or SAI, kind of use those interchangeably just as we transition that language. And so the biggest recommendation I have for that is to check out the SAI estimator tools. So a student can go in and they can kind of do like a mini FAFSA. It's not them 
submitting the form, it's going to ask for estimated information, but that will give them an idea in terms of what their SAI is going to be. And so that will help, especially for students who are tossing around ideas in terms of schools that they can afford, trying to figure out what their best fit is for that school, both you know academically, socially, and financially. And so that SAI estimator can help them get an idea of if this school that they're applying to is going to be a good fit for them financially. So, you know, having having a little more time, but especially with our, our students who are going into grad school as independent students, especially if this is their first time as applying for the FAFSA as an independent student, you know, the one of the dependency questions on the FAFSA is what degree are you pursuing? And so, students who are pursuing a degree that's after a bachelor's degree, that automatically makes them independent. That means they have no parent information. So they're doing this for the first time, potentially, as an independent student without that parent information. So getting that idea, again, of, of that SAI estimator is going to help them, you know, know which colleges they should be applying to in terms of grad programs. You have given us so many resources and tools and, and help, but is there any additional services, tools, et cetera, that can help students and parents navigate the FAFSA application and make informed decisions for college that you want to highlight right now? Yes. So besides SUNY.gov, always a good place to start. But if you want to go beyond that, I would encourage you to check out ISAC's website. So ISAC.org, I-S-A-C.org for our listeners. It's a great resource. There is a section specifically for students and parents. There's also a section for parents in Spanish to just get more information on everything with the college going process, especially with all these changes. It is going to be dedicated to them in terms of how they can be preparing before college, how they can be prepared during college, and also what to expect after college, especially as they enter into repayment. The core is a great resource, of course, as well. There is a tool on our student portal, which is another resource, to be able to look up where your core member is. If there's somebody located near you, you just plug in your phone number. And that's something where I, as a core member, I got calls from students and parents all the time because my phone number was on the website. So that's something where students can look up their core member and they can just give them a call if they've got some questions or if they want them to come meet with them at the school to fill out their financial aid application. But on that student portal, not only is that look up your core member option there, but there's tons of other tools. There's financial aid calculators. One of my favorite tools on that site is the financial aid offer comparison worksheet. And that's something where they can print it out. They can do it online if they want to, where when they start to get those financial aid offers in the spring, they will see, and we know that financial aid offers are, are not a template and that they're all different and that you'll see some schools that have an offer for a student where it's $0 out of pocket and another school where it'll say that it's $5,000 out of pocket, but the one that says zero has a big old parent plus loan there. So we know that it's not consistent across the board. And so that tool is going to help students get an idea of what kind of aid they're being offered, how much of that is gift aid or money that they don't have to pay back, how much of that aid is self-help aid in terms of loans, federal work study, how much of that is going to be a loan for, say, their parents, and then what that out-of-pocket cost is going to be. So it really lays it all out just in a more consistent format so that the student can really get a good idea. So that's one of my favorite tools, but there are so many other tools on the student portal that the student can look at in terms of just preparing, but also while they're in school as well. And then that SAI estimator tool is another one that comes to mind that I mentioned earlier, just to get an idea of what the student potentially could be looking at in terms of financial aid. In thinking about the different terminology that higher ed uses for financial aid, we used to use financial aid offer letter. Now we use financial aid notifications. Now I see award letter some places. So we use different terminology depending on what institution you're planning to attend as well. So I'm sure that that, make, that tool makes it a lot easier to understand those differences. Would you like to share some success stories about any students that might have benefited significantly from the FAFSA application process? So sure, I do have some success stories that I have seen with students in terms of benefiting from financial aid significantly. Some of them that I've seen have been students who potentially were going to be dependent students, and that was going to be a really big challenge for them. And they were able to get a designation that 
said that they were an independent student. So one of the ones that comes to mind is I was working with a student a few years ago who was in a situation where her parents were divorced and they were, one of them, you know, had kicked her out of the house. One of them was just not in the picture. And so it was a really delicate situation where, you know, I kind of had to ask some clarifying questions and that can be really uncomfortable because a lot of students might not realize why you're doing that, but they also might not realize what that could indicate to, you know, their status. And so for this student in particular, you know, she was living with her friend's family which for FAFSA purposes, that is not fixed and permanent housing because that family has no legal obligation to keep that student. And so I was able to ascertain from just the questions that we were going through together that this was a student that was going to be considered homeless and unaccompanied. And so that means that the student was able to get a determination letter from the homeless district liaison at the high school to become an independent student. And that is one of the dependency questions that's asked of the student is, are you homeless and at risk of you know, being homeless and unaccompanied? So that question does have two prongs. The student does need to be both experiencing homelessness and unaccompanied or not in the custody of a parent. And the reason for you know the fact that technically, yes, she did have access to one parent, but we were kind of able to, to decipher that this was a student who while they had, you know, been kicked out of that home, it was kind of an abusive situation. And so this was a student who had access to a lot more funding because they now were an independent student. So, and then another situation that that just kind of comes to mind is I was working with a student who had been in and out of college, was now an independent student, but wanted to return to school and was just kind of unsure about what that situation would look like. Previously, as a dependent student, you know, her EFC had been quite high. And so with the the parent information, but obviously now as an independent student, those parents were not contributing to her college, you know, journey. And so she was a little bit concerned um, to go back to school. And so I was able to just kind of walk through all of the options in terms of what's available for need-based aid. And we discovered after going through her FAFSA that her EFC was zero, which means full MAP and PEL, which was a game changer. And I think just for, for some students to realize that that was available to them can really make an impact. And I think sometimes sometimes students don't always know that that's available. I completely agree. There's frequently students don't really know that that can change the game, like you said, so much. So in wrapping up today's episode, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah. So as we wrap up, I would just kind of summarize the things that I've been talking about throughout our um, podcast today. So get those college applications in, get your FSA IDs created. Those are my, my two biggest pieces of advice at this point, you know, get those scholarships in as well. But ask for help, right? If you are needing some assistance in terms of getting those applications in, understanding the process, ask for help when you need it. There are so many people out there who are willing to help you in this process because it can be really overwhelming, especially if you are a first-generation student. So ask for help when you need it. There are a lot of people doing this work. And I will just reiterate that ISAC has a lot of services that are available to students and all of the services that we offer are free for students and families as well. I just want to really thank you so much, Beth, for being here today. You're just a wealth of information. And I think the more that we can highlight everything that ISAC does and as a free resource to families is really helpful. So as always to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. And remember to like, subscribe, and share Making Sense of Money.